Welcome to this week's episode of Engines, EVs, and Espresso. The podcast about caffeine, machine, and all things in between. And Allie's here too. And I'm here too. Actually here, because last week you're not. None of us were recording last last week. We were all scattered in different places. But yeah, last week I was at the Spanish GP wrangling Ed um, for a lovely interview. And Molly was in Detroit, like riding in an Indy car, which is crazy. Yeah. Wrangling gonna- drivers, team owners, riding in an Indy car. It was great. I have so much more coming to sitting in my drafts, so that's going to be fantastic. I think I dumped 18 gigs of data onto my external drive that I filmed, so I got a lot. What is everybody drinking this morning? Well, I'm drinking a Celsius because it is early, but I did have a new bean this week as provided by my bean dealer, aka my worst influence, a colleague of mine who is like my coffee partner in crime, and it's from Theodore's Coffee. I don't know what one it is, but he goes, I hear, or I remember you like dark roast here, and hands me a Ziploc bag. So we (laughs) trade coffee in Ziploc bags, or like I actually have like little um, like containers now that are two ounces. So like two ounces is like what I know he likes to grind when he makes coffee. And so I give him little two ounce containers now of beans, but we trade beans and people look at us like we're insane because we'll just like walk up to each other in the office don't care who's around and just be like, here you go and hand each other a Ziploc bag of beans. And so he gives me this dark roast from Theodore's Coffee. And if you've not checked out Theodore's, they're really good. He just has a really great ecosystem and a really great relationship with all of his farms. And the beans he puts out are amazing. I really like the barrel aged he does. And then I have a geisha coming to try from him that I'm really excited. But he gave me this dark roast. Yes. I had it the other day. It was delicious. And I like it because it wasn't super oily. And anybody that drinks dark roast will know. No, don't say that word. Dark roast. I'm going to say it. Do you want moist then? Um, Dark (laughs) roast beans get oily because you have to roast them for so long to make them a dark roast that it expels more of the natural bean oil. So then you wind up with this like really oily roasted bean. I hate really oily dark roast. I'm like, if I wanted beans in oil, oil. I would eat... (laughs) (laughs) And if I wanted beans and oil, I would go eat Mediterranean beans out of like the can with like the oil and like the the seasonings and everything. So this is not super oily and is absolutely roasted, toasty, delicious. And I will be ordering a bag. I really wish people could see Abby's (laughs) visceral reaction to the constant use of the word oily (laughs) talking about these beans. It's 7.30 in the morning, Brad. She's so sad that she has to be awake. And and then oily. Barraged. With the word oily. No, no. I think this I think this is my moist. (laughs) (laughs) I I, moving on on that oils, I will call it just oils, uh, because that's better for my brain. Uh I also got two new beans this week. Both are Peruvian. I didn't want both of them to be Peruvian, but it ended up being the interesting part was that I went to a new coffee roasters here in town called Texas Coffee Traders. They're the biggest Austin specialty coffee roaster. They're very economical, actually. Mm. Eight ounces was only seven and a half dollars, which is very cheap for specialty coffee. 
They directly get it from the farm. Even though this was their medium roast, everything felt like it's on a little bit of the darker side because they do an air roasting technique versus a drum roasting. The first time I've seen beans have this level of fats and acids and oils just actually onto the surface, even though it's a medium roast, and I saw a couple of their darker roasts and feels like it's drenched in the fats and oils. So we talked about last week or a couple of weeks ago about how coffee goes bad pretty quickly if it's on the darker side, because the oils have already come to the surface. And I think that causes to the rancidification, which James Hoffman's How to Make Best Coffee at Home, the book that he recently released, talks about it a little bit more. That's been one of my coffee learnings this week, that oils up to the surface, same as Molly said, is the one of the biggest parts of why dark roast coffee goes bad quickly. The other one that I'm drinking is also a Peruvian roast from another coffee roaster called Super Thin Coffee here. And why I already got coffee, like two different bags of coffee in the same week was, you know how we talk about this five to 30 day or per James Hoffman, it's like an eight to 30 day is your kind of mark of drinking coffee. I was drinking the first Peruvian roast at the one day mark. I actually had stomach pains. We talk about the beans degassing because of the CO2 that's coming off from the beans and to a certain point that the flavors are, can be broken down properly. So that's another part. Don't let your beans be really fresh that came out of the roaster the day before. It can just not be good for your body as well. So I don't know when this became a health podcast, but yeah. Oily beans. Oh, I said that word. Oily and beans and gassiness. Woo. <laughs> Woo. Woo. Hey, we're talking about uncomfortable topics. Uh, only hot vacation. girls have tubby, hot, hot girls have tubby troubles and all three of That's us do. True. So it's we a podcast of hot oh my girls. Gosh. It, it it's is. so true. So I have two Peruvian <laughs> beans. I'm traveling back for work starting next week. I don't know how I'm going to finish them in 30 days, but we're going to give it a try. Uh, Allie, what are you drinking? Um, Well, it is not the morning time for me. I am in Portugal currently. It is 2.18 p.m. as we speak. And um, I have already had my little shot of espresso this morning. So espresso is a very big deal here. And I'm very much enjoying kind of soaking that up. Also, dark roasts are a big thing here. So I've been enjoying wandering over to the coffee shops and getting my little espressos in the morning. Um, If anybody's ever been to Porto or Lisbon, I'm in Porto right now, you will know that walking for more than five minutes is basically hiking because it's the hilliest place in the world. It's right along, not in the world, but you know, it's in the running. And um, my favorite coffee shop here so far happens to be at the top of like five stories of stairs always trying to do because they're very cool it's a very like hip little place and it has this really gorgeous view and I'm always trying not to be like wheezing by the time I get up there because like the locals are just like nothing it's like no problem whatever old like, like old people are doing it like everybody's doing it and they're totally fine and I'm like three steps up and I'm like <sighs> but then the coffee you know re-energizes me it's a good cycle and I'm you know trying to get back in shape I guess so I hey. one on one hand I've had great coffee on another hand I've really learned exactly how much like better shape I need to get in so you know hey. achievements all around 
Y- Europe will give you the best food and also put you into shape. I remember yeah, my no. month in Italy having espressos every day and pasta for every meal and I lost weight. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the walking around is such a big part of the culture that I think it just helps movement in good ways for our body. So I am glad you're enjoying that time. Uh, you have 18 gigabytes of content that you captured at the Detroit IndyCar Grand Prix from last week. Yes. Tell us tell us about that in less than 18 minutes. I had the time of my life. Uh it was less chaotic than we thought it was going to be, but still very chaotic because that track is bumpy and that track is tight. Um, I went on a track walk Thursday with the Errol McLaren team and I, I watched Tony Kanaan stand over a bump on the track with Gavin Ward and the look on his face said, God, I'm so glad I'm not doing this. And I'm pretty sure he said that at some point too, that he was like, I'm glad I'm not racing this race. <laughs> that track was brutal. So like... The takeaway that I learned from talking to a lot of people was the track surface was not what they expected. So, like, we knew what the track configuration was going to be, but they got there and the city of Detroit ground the hell out of the track. So it was a lot rougher, a lot bumpier, and a lot different, um, like, surfaces. So grip was really questionable, and it was really, really bumpy because the manhole covers in Detroit like to sink. And there's a lot of those on the track. So it was wild. It was so much fun. I talked to so many people. People thought I was a spy. I kind of learned that... They're not used to creators and like influencers being like technically minded. And so like we were talking to Firestone and they're giving us like the spiel, the like little Firestone tire tour. And I asked a question about graining. The guy puts the tire down and looks at me and goes, are you sure you're not a spy for Michelin? And I'm like, no, like I just I'm curious about tire graining and how you model for it and how you can go like graining. The tire sucks. If I run it long enough, it goes fine again. Like, I want to know how you guys approach that and how you understand that. And it was like, let me go get you an engineer. <laughs> and then Marcus Erickson's team, I think they thought I was a spy as well because I was standing in the garage and I pointed out, to, like, in front of the garage in the paddock, pointed out to somebody, hey, see the turbo exhaust, like the charge air exhaust line on the Honda? It's packaged differently than the Chevrolet. See how it's tighter on the Honda, whereas the Chevrolet stuck out more? This guy's like, working furiously on Marcus's car doing like a set down his head snaps up and he glares at me and then continues to walk around the car does not take his eyes off of me and then is like talking to somebody and is like staring me down until I walked away so it was kind of interesting (laughs) it was I was like oh no oh no this is terrible and then like I got to talk to Mike Shank which was really fun because I'm a sports car girly as well so like we talked about like fuel mileage and then like um setup and set downs which was I didn't know there was a term for it like he taught me something which was really cool and then drivers were great I also got to go on a two-seater which was so freaking fun full fire suit face helmet balaclava the whole nine yards in an indie car bucket list item for me I have broken my all-time land speed record. So previously, the fastest was 137 miles an hour with Simon Pagno in a CTSV on the old Detroit course at Belle Isle. I have now gone close to 160 based on what they were saying, somewhere 150, 160 on the long straight at Detroit, which is actually almost as long as the longest straight in IndyCar. So that was wild. And like, you think you know what's going to happen and then you don't. 
So like I knew that getting in, I was going to have to like brace my core to not get thrown around because that was like they tell you that in like the conventional car hot laps. Like you like clench your abs and like really bracing your core to keep yourself like stable. That's part of why drivers need good core strength so like they can react in the corners. So like I knew that, but then like nobody tells you you're not going to be able to breathe. So like they strap you in and you're already like strapped in really tight and you've got the helmet, baklava and all that. And you're like, all right, it's already hard to breathe. And then you start to pull G's in the corners and you're like, I can't breathe because somebody's sitting on my chest is what it feels like. So like you can't even get a breath in. Mm-hmm. And so by the time you you have a second to one, remind yourself to breathe and two, try to breathe, you're already in another corner pulling more G-forces. And so I was like, I got out of the car and was wheezing. Like I went up five steps, sets of steps, like Allie for a coffee. I was like, <laughs> like I was gasping. And then um, they were like, well, be careful. You can get dizzy. And I was like, no, no, I'm fine. And like throw myself off the side of the radiator and on the car. Like I was meant to do that all my life. And there was a little stool there like the, the F1 guys have. And I was filming a TikTok after. And I actually like kept the take because I thought it was a good take. And then I like re-recorded two more takes. And the one take that I first recorded, you can see how dizzy I got. I actually got really dizzy from pulling the G loads and not being able to breathe. And I was like, Jesus, like, this is insane. Like, I knew that like cornering an open wheel car was tough. And I mean, I was in like an older style, like they're not older style, but like, it's not like current gen or anything. Like it's like dated equipment, two seater. I have so much more respect. And now I just have, like, have so much more empathy and understanding of like what goes on in a race car. It was, I thought we were going to get to go for two laps. I was really sad that we didn't get to because I was the first group, which meant we got to do the tire warm up. But it was warm enough that the tires didn't need additional warm up. I was sad. That is but, a lot. What are your biggest like takeaways from the weekend? Like it could be the race itself or it could be like an engineering thing you noticed. I know you already talked about a couple of those things, but if there yeah. are things that like you would sum it up in like... um. It's competitive AF. We watch like for qualifying, like no, like everybody says it's like competitive and it's like, I'm very well versed in IndyCar. Um, it was like, you still didn't know who was going to get anywhere. It, like I, you had no idea who was going to make fast 12 to go to fast six. Like it was super jumbled too, which was crazy. Um, my other big takeaway was this like everybody says this and like I already know this because I'm a big IndyCar girl is the openness so like you see somebody like and you're just like hey I have a question or hey like even a driver like um like they'll say hey they'll talk to you like everybody's super nice and open and like hey I have a question about this could you answer this for me and like they will and then I like orange Gatorade when it's provided by Aaron McLaren I hate orange Gatorade normally, but when it's 125 degrees on track and you're dying watching qualifying and you get offered an orange Gatorade by McLaren, which is very on brand, you drink it. (laughs) You are talking. Cutting insights. (laughs) Cutting insights, but you're also talking to a Gator where Gatorade was invented. You gotta like Gatorade. I like Gatorade. I just don't like orange Gatorade. <laughs> I am a light Abby blue frost Gatorade only girly. Abby's not mad. She's just disappointed. That's all. I'm very that's, disappointed. That's I love that Allie uh, narrates what my faces look like. That's something we're going to keep doing. Uh, this is very entertaining for everybody. It's my new hobby. Instead of saying, mm-hmm, I'm just going to narrate everybody's faces when we're relevant. That, that is actually pretty good. 
It's better, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so I think from the IndyCar weekend, well, my takeaway was it was very accessible for the crowds to come in, hop on the top of a building and get to see the race, grab mm -hmm. food from one of the food vendors and not even like get full tickets from some of the vantage points, which is so yeah. different than street races we see in like other series like Formula One. And mm -hmm. it just goes back to say that racing is such a huge ecosystem with so many different mm -hmm. entry points for us to kind of go and explore. And not to say that each of these experiences does not have a different kind of takeaway, but the IndyCar experience really looked very accessible. The race was very interesting. Yeah, they were going to say it was over half of the track you could access without a ticket to watch from. And yeah. then they did a huge activation in Hart Plaza and like a huge, like there were tons of stuff around just the, the track, like activations that you could just walk up to without a ticket. And then Hart Plaza, they had this whole fan fest, didn't even have to have a ticket. It was like vendors. They had a free Steve Aoki concert Saturday night. Like you could go see Steve Aoki for free like didn't have to have a race ticket just it was there for the race weekend like they did such a good job activating the city around the track too and like you didn't have to have a ticket for certain things which was really really awesome i also thought it was a very interesting track it's a tight track mm -hmm. with tight corners i i almost thought well was gonna take over and actually win the race but i did too for just like last year but overall, I thought the race was a fantastic, like the last 10 laps of the race really kept you hooked, which is like something you don't get a lot of in Formula One, at least this season. The last 10 laps was really, really close and it made for a really interesting racing. Yeah. And the tires hung on longer than we thought. That was a big factor too. The um, alternates, which are the greens, which are the mm -hmm. Guayulis, those like... Typically, you get a lap or two out of them, maybe five if you're pushing it. People were doing like 25 lap stints on the Guajulis, which was long. They were like able to do a long alternate stint, which was interesting because of how rough the track was and how abrasive mm -hmm. it was. But the grinding was in the direction of travel. So it wasn't like cross abrasive to the tire. It was in the direction of travel. So I think that that helped the tire life. But the tire strategy with those tires lasting as long as they did because the weather was mm -hmm. cooler too – was a huge, huge point. It was really interesting as well. And it, it definitely affected the overall race strategies because it was going to be a two-stopper, I think, either way. But it like definitely really affected the strategy because people were able to push on the on the greens for a while. Hey, again, really interesting racing. Something mm -hmm. I'm adding to the roster of things that I'm watching this season, mostly on rather than off. But I will be watching a lot more IndyCar this season live. And Yay. it's it's bringing me a lot of joy right now. Yes. Next up's Road America, which is one of my favorite tracks in the world. So it's going to be yeah. great. Milwaukee. No, not Milwaukee. It is Elkhart Lake. Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin. Correct. Not very far from Milwaukee. I'm excited to watch. I'm finally not at an F1 race when, when an IndyCar race is happening. So I'm very excited to watch and pester Molly with all of the thoughts and all of the questions. Um, I've already apologized in advance for that, but Molly seems, oh, it's fine. you seem up for it. But uh, Oh, totally. I'm very, Don't I'm mind at all. It. Yeah, Mo <laughs> at Molly all. is the walking, talking, 
racing educator that everybody kind of needs in their lives. Should we talk actually about EVs? Something we haven't talked about in a long, long time? EV charging? I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) Or my day job or something. Yeah. It's almost like both our day jobs or something. But let's talk about the charging partnerships that Tesla has with GM now, which comes after an announcement that they did similarly with Ford. And what does it really Shock mean? Shock of the e- century. It's it's going to re- revolutionize EV charging infrastructure in North America, which has been a big, big challenge mm-hmm. uh, for the scaling of this industry, even in one of the most, let's say, plentiful markets. I was going to say, I think it effectively is going to kill one of the type of charging options here in, in North America, because in the U.S., there are like three types of chargers that you can do. And it's because there was a lot of chaos when there used to not be a standard. And the standard wasn't in place until like 2012. And so like in EV charging, you can use the SAEJ, which is like what the world kind of uses. It's like the most common one. Um, That's like kind of the main deal, which is Society of Automotive Engineers. It's like the standard. And then there's um, CCS, which is like a combined AC and DC fast charger. And then there's Tesla which is North American Common Charging System, or NACS, I think is what it's NACS. NACS. I don't know what the C stands for, yeah. but it's North American Charging System or whatever. And that's proprietary. That's Tesla's own amalgamation. So they were involved in the standardization in developing the SAE and the CCS standard and then turned around and said, you know what, we're going to do it a better way and we're going to do it proprietarily with our connector. And so what NACS is, is rather than having separate pins for AC and DC fast charging, it's all one. And Elon's chargers don't care if it's AC or DC that it's supplying. You would need the different pins to be able to handle the different current loads that are coming to your charger. But what he did is my pins are rated for anything. And my charger is going to know, like my plug is going to know that I'm delivering AC or DC power and it doesn't care. It's going to charge the vehicle and the vehicle will charge accordingly to the supply power that's coming through the connector. It just doesn't care. It's going to charge based on whatever's being delivered to it. And so it eliminates some of the complexity of the chargers. And so with Ford and GM now saying, we're going to go to NACS after they've been SEEJ adopters and SEEJ and CCS users from the get-go, it's huge. And those are like pretty much two of the biggest um, users of that. So them saying, we're going to adopt the NACS has effectively killed the other charging styles. And it's also interesting when you think about it, because we always, we talk about it, the infrastructure of charging is one of the biggest obstacles. And this is diabolical and brilliant from them. that They're just saying, you know what, we're going to use what's already there from a cost investment standpoint for our EVs to make sure that our customers have the infrastructure. And we're going to use what's already there. And you know what, Ad- adopting NACS is probably a good idea to do that because now we don't have to invest in a lot more infrastructure for chargers. There's already a huge network there. Like Elon has the most accessible charging network in the United States for EV chargers. And what's also really interesting is why hasn't this happened sooner? I mean, we'll get into this. I think this is where you want me to go, Abby. Um, no, I, I have a lot of thoughts. I think the yeah. biggest thought before, before we even go there on what okay. has happened, I want to talk about like why CCS has not worked. And it's almost, okay. there is a profitability decision, right? Our favorite line, staff for profit. We're going to talk about it in a second. But mm-hmm. I think 
the biggest challenge that CCS has had is that like it's public domain, right? It's like open source, public mm-hmm. domain. Anybody can kind of innovate on it. And it's almost the same way as Android. Let's do an Apple OS versus Android analogy here, right? Never did like one Android, let's say, device ever become the standard. Yes, that Android operating system said, and you can find a whole quality of Android devices. So with CCS, for example, Berkeley, the university, University of California, Berkeley, uh, checked 675 CCS fast chargers last year in a study in the San Francisco Bay Area. Found that almost a quarter of them weren't functional. And yep. 2022, JD Power did a similar study. Other parts of the country did not work. And so Tesla's charging system has been much more reliable because, again, because it's all vertically integrated, they created it. It's almost, again, that USB-C versus USB conversation. Of course, USBs are a much older technology. They work. But when you design a piece of technology and it has been completely integrated into your system, it usually is reliable. And I think since really want to talk about this is this is such a big frontier because it's almost as similar to the terms of when Tesla made a lot of its technology open source so other companies can go innovate on it and actually work on the patent together and accelerate development it's almost uh analogous to that now EV charging development is really gonna let's say accelerate together because almost Tesla, Ford, and GM coming together and saying, we're going to go NSCS. This is it. Everybody is going to start adopting NSCS now. Back in the day, it was no hidden secret that the royalty to use the proprietary charger was exorbitant. It's been a conversation for a while of like, well, why don't we just go to NSCS? Why don't we commonize everybody? Pick one. And there's not been any adopters of NSCS because Elon wants so much money to be able to use his chargers and the royalty to the proprietary information Mm. on his chargers. And so where like I was going with this too is I actually wonder if it became such a good business case to Ford and GM in the sense that he came down on his royalty price that it was dumb for them to not do it from like an infrastructure business case versus cost of investment for their vehicles like to adopt the NACS versus the like overall benefit with the what I'm going to actually assume is a lowered royalty. It made a lot of sense for them because like, I'm not going to go spend $2 billion on Elon's royalty. So I bet you he came down in price. And like I said this before that I actually wonder if it's to help recoup the Twitter spent if um, he's looking for money in other places to try and recoup what he spent and he's willing to come down and be flexible in what he has in terms of royalties and what he's asking to help get cash flow generated. Yeah, the Tesla stock has gone all up and down since Elon's Twitter debacle. So that's no surprise. But uh, there isn't, with CNBC money, Mary Barra, the GM CEO, sat down and said that this charging deal is going to save the automaker up to $400 million dollars. And they had originally planned to spend 750, like quarter of a billion in developing the CCS system. So it's clunky. GM is not able to do a lot of it effectively. And they're going to end up saving 400 million of that. So effectively, 
their cost in, to be able to use the NACS chargers is only $350 million. And then Ford has just been on this, like, they don't really want to do much in-house. Like, this isn't a dig at Ford. This is, like, they were partnered with Rivian. Mm-hmm. Like, they like they yeah. want to use other people's skateboards and technologies to help keep their costs down and their development down. They're no longer working with Rivian. They actually chose to do in-house development on a lot of their EVs. But they're, for a long time, their stance has been they want to try and limit their in-house expenditures and their in-house resources and cost spend to utilize things that are already established and out there for their EVs. So I'm like not shocked to see this from Ford at all, that they're partnering up with NACS. I think GM shocked me more just because of like Mary's public disdain for Elon and the, and the public disdain that her and Mark have like taken when they ask them about Elon. I'm talking about Mark Royce, president of General Motors. Um, they like, they kind of like, you can tell in their face and they kind of groan or like roll their eyes when they get asked about Tesla and Elon. So I thought it was fascinating that they, they chose to link up and adopt NACS after the, the years of them kind of having a disdain for Elon and Tesla. Yeah. So Ford, it wasn't a shock though. So there's a couple of benefits. Again, the 350 million that I'm talking about is between what GM will spend now adopting Tesla's NCS charging port in their, let's say, EV charging uh, development budget and give GM EV owners access to the 12,000 or more of Tesla's fast chargers. But also, both of their stocks went up 3%. So overall, I think this this deal came in pennies. I think GM got the higher, let's say, hand here, and this deal came at pennies. And we haven't heard much from Elon from this. No big proclamations around it. So it kind of feels like this could have been something that GM put to Tesla and the Tesla's board made Elon take the deal. Otherwise, if this was Elon's idea, he would have been talking about it in every news outlet he could think about. He hasn't. It's all been controlled by GM in this announcement. So, which tells me the deal went to the Tesla board. The Tesla board said, we desperately need the stock bump. And that's, I think, the end of it. I guess that means we're nearly done. Um, full context, this is happening. We're recording this right up to the very beginning of the Le Mans 24 hour. So, like, we really need to uh, get it going. Molly is itching to get off this call. So, we got to go. But uh, this was great. I learned so many things. I hope our viewers did, or our listeners did too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Engine CVs and Espresso. Stay caffeinated. Please don't forget to like, rate, review, subscribe to this podcast on all your favorite listening platforms of choice. And be sure to follow us on social media on Instagram at Engine CVs and Espresso and at Racing Forces and on Twitter at Ecubed Pod. That's E C U B E D P O D. Bye. 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 Marquezing it now. <laughs>